Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks for parts one and two out of this six-week series, you will already know what Jesus is up to. If you're not, I'm going to fill you in in just a moment. Verses 25 through 30. This is Jesus speaking. He's in the middle of a thought, but we'll cover that. And I assure you that the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. When the dead will hear my voice. Is that a big claim? Say yes. He's either nuts, or he's lying, or it's true. The dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God. And those who listen will live. Verse 26. The Father has life in himself, and he has granted that same life-giving power to his Son. And he has given him authority to judge everyone because he is the Son of Man. Don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. And those who continue in evil will rise to experience judgment. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. Holy Spirit, if you do not work right now, all of this will be lost on us. Our hard hearts and our hard minds will not listen to you. (coughs) Unless you tread, uh, unless you plow through that hard soil, and you give us humility right now. God, there's nothing in our old selves that wants to submit to you, that wants to trust you. And so we ask for you to make the word of God to land in a soft place that you just created, right inside each of our hearts. Please grant this mercy because of the goodness of Jesus Christ. We ask for this. God's people said. Amen. Amen. Note takers, your first blank. This one should be easier than the rest. Life comes by listening to the voice of Jesus. Life comes by listening to the voice of Jesus. They were shocked, for those of you that weren't with us back at the beginning of this chapter, the religious elite are shocked and grumpy that Jesus would have the audacity to heal a man who for 38 years had not been able to walk. He heals him, and instead of being excited and amazed that this man can walk now, instead of sharing in this man's joy, instead, they're all religious grumpy pants going, you healed on the Sabbath. That's not allowed in our religious law. And you told him to pick up and carry his mat. And carrying your mat isn't allowed by our religious law. And and, and so what we've talked about these last couple of weeks, at bare minimum, this is a breathtaking spiritual blindness. If you had a friend for... 38 years that your friend was not able to walk and a religious teacher comes through town and heals your friend and your friend is walking and running and jumping now's a great time to get excited and these guys have so many religious rules they can't even be overjoyed for where this guy's at they can't even be happy for him because this Jesus guy broke our religious rules huh Which I believe the correct response is, who do you think you are? The irony is that Jesus, through this whole discourse, is actually turning it around and saying, who do you think I am? 
I'm going to show you something. And this transition, last week if you were here, this transition away from, hey, I healed a guy and he can walk now. Hey, the Father, I only do what the I see the Father doing. He allows me to do it. He empowers me to do it. And we work seven days a week because we're not finite human beings like you guys are. And if you think that's big, wait until you see my power over life and death. So that's the transition that leads us to where we are today. His first part of his sentence did not offend the Jewish mind. When Jesus said, in the Father is life, he has life and he can dole it out, nobody was offended by that part of the sentence. Jews already believed that. The Father gives out life. He created us in the beginning, right? God created the heavens. That's just logical Jewish thought. The Father gives life. What's not so cool, if you're a first century Jew, is when he says, and the Father gave me that as well. He calls himself the Son of God. Later in the text, he calls himself the Son of Man. He's saying, I am God and I am man, both. Confused? Welcome. (laughs) He says, I'm both. And there are going to be big implications to both. If Jesus Christ was a nice guy with some good teaching, but he was not God, then his claims to bring life to the dead would be a lie. That was just him getting too big for his britches. He was reading his own fan mail, and he, and he thought he was bigger than what he was. Have we seen that in the world? Say yes. Yeah. It involves really cool white shoes and some red Kool-Aid. When you think you are, when you think you are more awesome than you are, right? Okay. So Jesus claiming to be God is actually not anything particularly spectacular in world history. It's just not. A lot of megalomaniacs have said, hey, I'm God, follow me. And this is why the Church of Jesus Christ has spent 2,000 years making a big deal about a cross and an empty tomb. Jesus Christ's claims are a joke if he did not empty his own tomb. This is why I continue to plead with you. If you're kicking the tires of the Christian faith and you're trying to figure out, well, where did Cain get his wife? And do they really fit all those animals onto an ark? And I'm not so sure. And everybody really came from Adam and Eve. I'm going to keep saying the same thing to you over and over. If you think that's weird, wait till you find out that Christians believe in the resurrection of the dead. Christ resurrecting himself from death is more astounding and more impossible than any of your other hang-ups. There's nothing bigger than that. And the logic flows like this. If you can defeat death while you're dead, everything else is child's play. He can make a boat out of tinker toys and put humanity on it and save them from a flood. That's not hard. That's just not hard. Tinker toys, sorry, that's metal. Lincoln logs. There we go. The biblical narrative goes very different if Noah builds it out of Tinker Tor. Okay. That would, not, that would not be good. Everything that we hang up on, I'm not so sure about that, I'm not so sure about that. Yes, it's astounding, but it's not as astounding as the resurrection of Jesus Christ by his own power. It's just not. Okay? So I'm going to beg you, I'm going to plead with you. If you're wrestling with the Bible, you're wrestling with the church, you're wrestling with the claims of Jesus... Your journey must begin with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you find yourself studying the Bible and you agreed with everything that you read, but you got to the resurrection and said, eh, I'm not so sure, you'll never be reconciled to God. But if your heart is transformed by the living God and you find God trustworthy and you're able to believe the resurrection, everything else falls into place. Everything else falls into place. 
That was for free. Okay, life comes by listening to the voice of God. So, if you're a guest today, not sure yet what you think of Jesus, here's your blank. ARCF does not want you to listen to us. We want you to listen to Jesus. So here's a Bible. That's your blank. So here's a Bible. Those Bibles we handed out, they are our gift to you. If you don't own one, take it home. Nothing more precious than a human being reading the Bible for themselves. I am a broken human being. I sin thousands of times a day. I could be lying to you. So read the Bible for yourself. Please. 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 Christians, be faithful on Sundays. Be committed to a disciple group. Study the Bible each day. Listen to good podcasts of good Bible teachers. Read good blogs or good books. These are all ways that you can listen to the voice of Jesus every single day. Anybody ever tried to allow your only, to try to live the Christian life and your only dose of Jesus was a sermon once a week? Anybody ever tried that and it didn't go very well? I've done it. My hand's up. It doesn't feel good. If you actually love Jesus Christ and the Spirit's inside you, you feel like you're starving to death. You feel like you're on one of those abusive diets. I get a little dose of who God is for however long on a Sunday morning. And, but, I, but my Bible's dusty the rest of the week. I don't avail myself of books by good Christian authors that are helping teach me about the Bible. I don't avail myself of good podcasts. I, I'm not in a Bible study. I'm not in a disciple group. I'm not in a Sunday school class. I feel like I'm starving. And here's a warning. This wasn't in my notes. Here's a warning for you. If you believe that you are a Christian and you don't feel like you're starving, you might not be a Christian. I say that because the warning might lead to you self-assessing and making a different decision. If you are not feeling like you're starving to death, I get a little bit of Bible all week and I feel fine. You might be playing a religious game. You might be telling yourself that you're a Christian. And I want to love you enough to be mean way back in 2020. Way back, you know, 25 years ago when God changed your life. Because Pastor Greg had the audacity to point his finger at you and say, I'm not sure you're a Christian. You know that could be, that could be a transformative moment for you, right? Okay? And, and the, the writers of the Bible do it all the time. I'm not smarter or wiser than them. So I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. I will keep pressing in on you where it is necessary and say, this is what it looks like to follow after Jesus. If you're not doing it, you might not actually love Jesus. That's important for us to say from time to time. I, I was in a church where I heard the testimony of a brother who was really awesome and served as a deacon for some 30 some on years. And then he came forward to give his life to Jesus at the end of a sermon. So if, if you've heard those kinds of stories, you know that we can play games with religion and genuinely think we're following Jesus, but we've not been transformed. Our life has not actually been transformed. If I don't see active hunger and thirst for righteousness, why would I think I'm a Christian? We should just be honest with ourselves and say, I'm a functional atheist, I'm an agnostic, I'm a deist. Like, just be honest with yourself so you can be on whatever journey you want to be on. Lying to yourself helps no one, right? You're not doing anybody any service lying to yourself. Next point. All life, this is from verses 25 and 26, all life comes from a huge multi-dimensional being that cannot by definition fit under your microscope. Yeah. Did you know that? He is too small for your microscope and he is too big for your telescope. He won't fit. 
And this has nothing for the moment, although it comes straight out of 25 and 26. For the moment, I want to speak for the second, for a second here. As if the Bible is a lie. Some of you believe that, and so we're on a wavelength right now. Let's speak for a moment as if the Bible is a lie. First law of thermodynamics. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed, simply move from a more orderly to a less orderly state. The creation of energy, the scientific community has agreed together, is not possible. You cannot even destroy it. We tried to destroy an atom and what do we get? The unleash of its energy, right? We got the atom bomb. Yeah. The energy is still there. You can make it from a more orderly to a less orderly state. That's all you can do with it. So, the scientific community has agreed that the first law of thermodynamics is a law. So, let's go downstream from that and ask ourselves a question. Who or what violated the first law of thermodynamics for matter to exist? Matter. Things you can touch. This law, in the way it is written, says something or someone violated it for us to exist. Unless you believe all of matter is an illusion, and there, there are philosophies of that. If you believe matter is an illusion, fine. Most of us don't. Most of us are functionally materialists. All that I can touch is the only thing that's real. Functional materialism, or maybe deism you know, baked into the cake a little bit. Who or what violated law? It's called a law. It's a law because you can't, right? Yeah, the Christians aren't confused. They're like, Jesus, duh, Pastor, jeez. But I'm not talking to Christians. Christians, you just wait for your ice cream. I'm not talking to you. Because I'm not talking to Christians because I already said the Bible's a lie. If the Bible's a lie... And the scientific community has agreed that the creation of energy and the destruction of energy is not possible. I want to beg you to consider, how are we here? How are we here? How are we here? And I've got worse news for you. If you come up with an answer to that, you still will have not found the answer your heart longs for the most. Voltaire believed that he absolutely knew how we were here. He didn't know why. And so on his deathbed, despair, despair, despair. That is all that there is. Wow. The man who would only hire Christians as servants throughout his huge home because the Christians were the only ones that wouldn't steal the silver. Yeah. Was utterly convinced that there was no God. And on his deathbed, despair, despair, despair. That is all that there is. He believed that he knew how he got there, but he never got to why. Why, if you are a human, any homo sapien in the house? Any homo sapien? Okay. Why is what drives a human being. I want to know why I am here. I want to know that my life has purpose. I want to know that my life has meaning. Why? Primordial sludge, even if I agree that that's how I got here, my heart will still yearn for a why. So I'm pleading with you, keep searching. Keep searching. Even if you think you found your how, your heart will yearn for why. You know why? Voltaire was probably smarter than you. And he desperately wanted to know why. Jesus' third point. Jesus' authority to judge humanity comes from him being a human and living perfectly. 
So in verse 27, he calls himself the son of man. If you were with us seven or eight months ago, you heard this whole sermon out of Daniel 9 where that phrase comes from. And it's pretty awesome. It says, one like a son of man. Meaning, you see all these godlike powers surrounding him, authority from the, the uh, gosh, what's the title? Ancient of Days, right? Yeah. It says, like a son of man. Like, he looks like he was born of a human, but he clearly has godlike powers. When Daniel is saying that, we're confused. When Jesus shows up, we go, oh. So he's got flesh, but he's walking on top of the water instead of swimming in it. He gets hungry, and yet he just healed this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and the doctors couldn't do anything. He is man, and he is God. And both of these are covered in the text. Verse 27. Uh, let's back up to 26. The father has life in himself. And he has granted that same life-giving power to his son. And he has given him authority to judge everyone. Why? Because he's the son of man. What? Huh? Huh? So let me unpack that. Jesus choosing to become human. Facing all the temptations that we face. And yet, Hebrews, without sin never ever once gives in to the sins or temptations that we all give into every day that gives him the right to judge humanity anybody ever said you can't judge me you're not perfect like that's actually really well aligned with biblical justice because the bible says jesus is perfect he will judge you the bible says it over and over again and it's a really good thing that the bible is also very clear jesus does not want to judge you he doesn't want to John 3.17, the Son of Man came, what? Not to condemn the world, but to save the world, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not to condemn, but to save. And he's talking about right then, when he was in the flesh, 2,000 years ago, on earth. He's not saying there's no judgment ever. He's just saying, I have the right to judge, and I came with mercy, because that's who I am. We have a God with all the right to judge and be angry for his children raping and murdering each other. He should be ticked. But he's also a patient God. And so he's come first with mercy. He's come with patience. He has a long wick. What we need to read from the Bible is that God has a really, really long wick. But the bomb at the end is bigger than anything you've ever seen. Where blood flows four feet deep across the earth when he comes to, to exact all of his justice on us. Long, long wick. Big bomb at the end. He could have just brought the bomb. Anybody ever read Genesis and gone, how did he not quit right now? <laughs> who slept with who? Who murdered who? Yeah. Yeah. You and I, with our little Pharisee hat on, just through Genesis, we would have ended humanity dozens of times. <laughs> Judah and Tamar? Did you ever flannel graph? Any Sunday school teacher, you ever did Judah and Tamar on your flannel graph? You want to no. teach that one to the second graders? No. no. This is how humanity is behaving shortly after we rebel against God. You and I would have quit a long time ago. We would have quit on humanity. And God has not. He didn't quit. He said, I'll put on flesh. I will live the life you should have lived, but can't. I will die the death that you deserve, but you don't want to die. And then I will defeat Satan's sin and death in a weekend. Mm -hmm. because of who he is he's just that kind of God his plan didn't come just from what 
we needed, and it definitely didn't come from what we deserved. His plan came from who he is. So you're blank, living perfectly. Bullet point down beneath that. Why do we sometimes react defensively when others do something good? Note takers. Why do we sometimes react defensively when others do something good? A few years back, Emily and I began the journey of going through our classes to receive our... The word credentials is the only thing in my head. Certification, thank you. Some C word. Our foster adopt certification, foster certification, really. I got on the phone with my one of my very best friends, who was already a father, and I said, Ken, this is just so terrifying to me. We took 16 hours of classes, and they're about to put a child in our home. There's no way 16 hours of classes teach you what you need to know to be a parent. This is insane. And his response was, well, we took Bella home from the hospital with zero hours of classes. <laughs> and I just became so terrified on behalf of humanity at that point. This is why shrinks will always have a job. <laughs> we are born to be, especially the firstborn, we are born to people that don't yet know what they're doing. And they're going to practice on us and hopefully the second and third get treated a little bit better. And... Poor daughter. She's, my daughter's a guinea pig because she's the first. She's the first. So I have to make all of my parenting mistakes and hopefully I'm nicer to Gabe's. And... Here's what was interesting. Our church at the time, just so gracious and so loving. And they had, we all know what a baby shower is, right? Yeah. How cool is it when a church is able mentally and emotionally to pivot and go, somebody who's about to have a foster child come into their home, they also need a shower. Yep. Don't they? Mm -hmm. And we don't even know what to get them because we don't know what age or gender the child will be. Uh. Right? That's a different ball game, isn't it? Our church loved us and served us really well. And I made sure when we had our shower, I, I wanted to be clear. I knew there were people in the room, just like a room today. It was mixed religiously, people all over the map, of what they believe about Jesus. And I said to them, hey, I really, I really, Emily and I appreciate your nice words. You guys say all kinds of nice things about, oh, you guys are such nice people to open up your home to foster kids, blah, blah, blah. I just said, you know, we're not that nice. We appreciate your words, but... <laughs> The gospel of Jesus Christ is one of adoption. Mm -hmm. I was on the outside, and by his blood, he made me part of the inside. He adopted me into the family. I was a rebel. He made me a son or daughter. That's right. yeah. Amen. So what I said to the room that day was, adoption should not and must not be held up as some, oh, you guys are do-gooders. Adoption in the church of Jesus Christ must be normal. Normal. This is what we do. In fact, historically it is. Christians in Rome went and took the babies that were legally allowed to be left on the trash heap. And they picked up those babies and took care of them. This is millennia old. But the weirdest part of that journey was people's awkward way that they would come and talk to us with this weird guilt. Like this chip on their shoulder. This guilt that we didn't put there. Like, oh, you guys are such great people. 
for being foster parents, I could never do that. We heard, we heard it over and over. The same, it's, almost, it's like somebody handed out a script. You guys are such nice people for doing that. We, we could never do that. Oh, man, I, just, I wouldn't know how to do that. Or, or when we raised our kids, I, nobody was talking about adoption back then. You know, like adoption's brand new. It hasn't been around for 2,000 years. Um, longer, really. Christian adoption's been around for 2,000 years. This weird, like somebody had handed out a script, this weird narrative kept coming back to us. And as we thought about it, as we prayed about it, I go, huh. When somebody standing in front of me does something or says something that really just smells like Christ, it has the aroma of Christ, even if I'm a Christian, I feel guilty because of it. I feel like I should have done something. I feel like I should have lived my life differently. I feel like I should have helped out somehow. Brothers and sisters, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you raised your children 40 years ago and somebody's raising a child now and you see Christ in it and you're like, wow, I wish I would have done that with my kids. Fine, say that, but don't condemn yourself for it. You gave your children the best you could give them at the time with what you knew. Amen? Amen. 30 years from now, I'm going to hopefully know a lot about parenting. And I'll have nothing to do with my children except apologize. <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't do this. I'm sorry I didn't do that. I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I said it that way. I wish I had been more loving. I wish I had been more patient. I wish I had more wisdom back when I was raising you way back in 2020. We get awkward when we see somebody doing the right thing. And if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can see people continually getting awkward when Jesus is around. They often respond, well, well you think you're better than us? To which he says, well, I wasn't going to mention it, but... <laughs> Since you brought it up, Right? And you watch this interesting dance because he's also perfect in his humility. He's perfectly humble and yet he's perfectly honest. He cannot tell a lie. So he's got to tell you. He has to stand in front of the high priest and say, if any of you can accuse me of sin, go for it. The perfect life of Jesus Christ was problematic 2,000 years ago when we were all being about the religious rules. We didn't like it and we killed him. And yet the perfect life of Jesus Christ is what he swapped with us on that cross. He took all of our guilt and we took all of his holiness so that we get to walk into heaven by faith one day, looking as if we never sinned. That is good news. Amen. If you're new to church, I need you desperately to understand Christians don't go to heaven because they were good people. They go to heaven because Jesus used his own blood to wash away every one of their sins. Amen. That's why anybody gets to go to heaven besides Jesus. Jesus is the only one who goes in on his own credentials. That's it. But the scriptures say that he led a crowd of captives. Amen. That's good news. I'm telling you guys, I preach the same thing every week. <laughs> Last, I'm going long. And you, you might have felt this. If you've been around the Bible for a while, you might have felt this at the end in verse 29. So I want to clarify this and then we'll be done. Salvation is based on grace. We get that from Ephesians 2, not from this text. Being saved, having your heart transformed so that you trust God, that is by God's grace. He steps into your heart and changes it. But judgment, which he's speaking to in verse 29, 
Judgment is based on a person's actions. Judgment is based on a person's actions. So sometimes you'll read certain parts of the Bible that talk about Christian <laughs> behavior, and they'll make you feel weird, like, wait, I've got to do lots of good stuff to get into heaven. The Bible says, no, 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 no. Your heart was transformed by Jesus, by his grace. Now, good works, treating others well, treating God rightly, is the natural byproduct of a transformed heart. We are going to be judged by our actions, whether good or evil. He said that. I'm going to raise everybody from the dead. Two types of resurrection. One you want to be a part of, the other you do not want to be a part of. And it will be based on your actions. But the Bible's very clear. Your actions come from, there's something before your actions. Not you white-knuckling it saying, I'm going to be really religious. What's downstream is, do I have a new heart? Not because I chose it, but because God mercifully changed me. We will be judged by our actions. Christians should always take seriously the fruit of our lives. Not to wonder if God will let me into heaven, but to know, did God really change my heart? Did he really transform me? So you're blank down beneath. We get this from John 15. Fruit is indicative that a branch has life. Fruit is indicative that a branch has life. Throughout the Bible, when God uses the vine and the branches analogy, he's like, he looks at the fruit. And what does he do if there's no fruit? He prunes it. What does he do to the fig tree when there's no fruit? He curses it. But he says in John 15, if you are in me and I am in you, you will bear much fruit. So don't freak out about it. Christians should not be worrying day in, day out, am I saved? If there is fruit, that is showing you, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. You're attached like a vine and a branch. Make sense? If you are new to church, this helps you understand your hypocritical Christian neighbor. One, it means if they are a Christian, they're in process, and so they're still sinning, and they're apologizing, and they're repenting. Or, your neighbor thinks they're a Christian. Those are both possibilities. Those are possibilities. I say that to you who are investigating faith. It is possible your neighbor thinks they're a Christian and are not. And I need you to know that because some of you keep judging Jesus Christ based on the behavior of somebody next door to you. Your neighbor being a hypocrite doesn't mean Jesus was a hypocrite. Those are not the same. Your neighbor did not go to the cross for you. I'm going to pray. And then I have two last things to share a family business. I went long. Jesus, would you change us, please? As individuals, as a family, would you change us? Because God, if you don't change us, then what's the point? God, if you don't change us, we will not give you more of the honor and praise that you deserve. So would you change us, please? God, if you don't change us, we will not love our world better. God, if you don't change us, we won't love each other better. God, would you please change us? We do not come here to stay the same. We do not come here for comfort, to be patted on our back and told everything's okay. We come for transformation in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we come for, God. That's what we are hungry for. So please grant it by your mercy. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. Amen.